Ali Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're joined, as always, to talk about coaching parents, not kids, coaching parents, by Dr. Rose Fernandez-Stein, and she's with the International Family Clinic, and they're in Burlington, North Carolina. And for the past 16 years, they've been providing the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and now care for nearly 5,000 children. She's also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. And Dr. Rose, thanks for joining us. Oh, so happy to be here and and share these stories with parents that uh, are struggling. Great. And let's talk about, you know, we usually identify a specific child. I think today we want to identify a specific problem that we're seeing run rampant, and I think not just amongst kids. I would bet if we looked at the studies, this is hitting adults too. Uh, But let's talk about sleep. Oh, boy. We have a sleep disturbance uh, pandemic. Uh, We see this in the clinic all the time, but I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are seeing this in their very homes where children are waking up in the middle of the night, they can't console themselves, and they can't comfort themselves But I do want to give a picture to the parents of what happens many times if those sleep disturbances don't get taken care of and we allow the mind to be restful at night and also to self-comfort, which is a very important thing for children to learn early on in life. And what does that mean, self-comfort? And let's talk about the source of so many of those disturbances. Where do those disturbances come from and how do we get to that thing called self-comfort? Well... A lot of the disturbances come from us not knowing that children don't just sleep in patterns that are similar to adult patterns. They don't just start falling into being able to sleep eight hours. That is something that children are guided into, and this happens soon after the child is born, if not immediately after. So I'll talk a little bit about what should be happening in your homes when you bring the newborn home so that you start understanding how, um, how to get that child to be able to fit into the home but also to be restful and not be as irritable as they could be if they're not sleeping the right way. So the first thing I tell the parent is that children, newborn children, need to be in wake sleep cycles about every two and a half to three hours. And most of the time, babies have their days and their nights spun around so that at night they have their periods of wakefulness. And during the day, they sleep most of the time. And so that's when it becomes a mom's job to turn that wake-sleep pattern around. And so how do you do that? Well, moms are naturally the ones who are up more during the day, and it's very rough on her. If she has to take care of two other kids and get things done and be up all night, this is impossible. You can't run a house that way. So for her sake, but also for the child's sake, I asked her to do a certain thing. I said, okay, so I would like you to do a schedule. So every three hours, your life will be run in little, little capsules of three hours. So let's say that you wake up at 7 o'clock. I need you to figure out how in those three hours you're going to have the capsule of what you need to get done between 7 and 10. So I'll give her a little example, and I'll say, so at 7 o'clock you're going to wake up, and you're going to rest a moment and then go pick up your child. But what if my child is sleeping, she says. 
Well, I tell them, I don't believe in this whole ad-lib feeding, which just means that you feed the child when the child wants to be fed. I said, I'd rather you be the one who ad-lib feeds when you know that your child needs to be fed. And we know that the child needs to be fed every two and a half to three hours in those first five or six weeks. So you go over to the child and very nicely, gently pick the child up. You feed her or him and then keep her awake for a little while. Just talk to her, have the TV on, uh, play with her just a little bit. And then after that time, you're going to be able to be the controller of the hour and a half that you have left. So you can let your child sleep for that hour, hour and a half, and you're going to constantly have this little block. And so in each one of your hour, hour and a half, you're going to put one of your household items that you need to get done in that hour, hour and a half. Remember, you might have to take your children to school. You might be still cooking dinner. You might still have to clean. All of these things have to be put into that hour, hour and a half that goes after picking your child up, feeding her, and spending the time with that baby that needs to be spent changing the diaper, et cetera, et cetera. And she goes, wow, I never thought about that concept, that I am the ruler of my time, but my time comes in little capsules of three hours. I said, once you get you wrap your head around that, then you're the owner of the time and not the, the time, the owner of you. And by the time your child is six weeks old to eight weeks old, I guarantee you that if you continue to do that and you turn the lights off and you talk to your child very softly at night and you don't prolong the feeding times at night, that that child will start sleeping through the night and will sleep six hours by the time that child is six to seven to eight weeks of age. And I remember when I came up with this by reading the, the Ezo uh, 20 years ago. It's a book called Being, Becoming Baby Wise. And I said, ah, oh, that's a three-hour capsule. I get that. And I started thinking about that and making a schedule for myself. Well, I was about to start the practice six weeks after my daughter was born. And my husband looks over at me, and he sort of chuckles, and he says, you know, you're so type A that you want your child to be type A along with you. And, and he laughed at me and said, that's not going to happen, you know. And so he had to eat his words because at five weeks and six days, I woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I said, did I sleep through Hannah's, through Hannah's wake pattern? And he looked over at me, and <laughs> yep. he said, I'll be darned. That kid slept for six and a half hours all by herself. I said, it works. It works. It works. And when we come back, Dr. Rose, we're going to dig into later sleep patterns, later sleep problems uh, for families who haven't broken this early and now have kids in their teens, five, six, seven, eight years old, and even late teens who just can't get through the night and all the problems that occur from people who just don't sleep well. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And we're talking with our parent coach, Dr. Rose. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue now with our conversation with our parent coach, and I'm sorry for calling you that, Dr. Rose, but it, it, I think the shoe just fits. And, and ultimately, you work with kids and behavioral problems, but through your practice and many years doing what you do in North Carolina, uh, you've stumbled upon the insight that more often than not, it's the parents who lead to the kids' behavioral problems and not the other way around. And we were talking about sleep problems, sleep patterns, getting them established early, but now we're going to bore down on a particular patient. Talk to us about Alan. Oh, yes. Alan is, he is such a great kid today. But when mom brought him in because of his aggressive, uncontrollable behavior at home and at school, he was in dire straits. You see, the school couldn't keep him because he would go into these fits of rage at school. And because he's tall and and, and big and, and looks like a football player, the school was afraid. They had to sometimes lock him up in a room because if he didn't get what he wanted, he would become a bully and he would get into the teacher's face, into the into other students' faces, and then they call the mom and the mom had to stop whatever she was doing, whether she was at work or she was uh, at the supermarket and come running and pick uh, Alan up so that he would not be a danger to the school anymore. So this is where this started, and he had also a diagnosis of autism, but it wasn't just autism. It was a lot of behavioral issues, and and they called it obsessive-compulsive disorder and, and an aggressive disorder as well. And so when he came, he was making very little eye contact. Uh, he would repeat things quite a bit. And the one thing that really alarmed me about, about Alan is that he was having very much trouble sleeping. And so he was seeing a psychiatrist who had him on four or five different psych meds, uh, two of them for ADHD, one for depression, one for anxiety, and one for sleep. And with all of these medications, each one has a side effect. And I'm thinking, I don't know which one of these these medications is actually causing some of these behavioral problems that he's having or his sleep pattern uh, changing. And I looked at mom, who's looking, who's telling me, well, these are all the medications, and this is how I give it. And and she also had him on melatonin, which is a natural sl- a sleep medication. And I said, I I, I don't know how this started. And she told me that, well, he was very difficult to console at night uh, when he was a little boy, that he would mostly uh, sleep in the evenings and not not, uh, at night, and that he had to sleep with the TV on. And I said, well, all of those things are very bad behavior patterns for him. And the last thing that she said is that this this, uh, young man couldn't sleep by himself so that he had to sleep with her. And so she was a single mom, and so they, they were sleeping together. And I said, that's not good for this young man because he had to know how to console himself, how to comfort himself, and how to help himself get to sleep. And he had to have the TV on, so therefore mom had to have the TV on, and mom wasn't able to sleep well with the TV going on at night. And so all of this, and this mom had developed this terrible uh, medical condition that was very real and is something that was going on inside her her, her brain like a brain tumor that was even making things more difficult. And, And Alan also has two other siblings. Oh, my goodness, I thought to myself, this poor mom, I don't know where to start with this. But let's start with sleep pattern, and that's where I started. 
I said, he has to learn how to sleep at night, and he has to learn how to comfort himself and get himself to sleep, Mom. And so let's start with that, and let's get him to where he's tired by a reasonable hour that's about 9 o'clock. And so put him in a, in, in a, 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 a schedule. Mom didn't have a schedule for him, so he sort of would take a shower when he, he thought he was tired, and he would watch TV and try to find sleep. And I said, okay, that's not working. Let's put a schedule on him. Let's have him play outside or work outside for a certain amount of time, then have him come inside, do a little bit of his chores, eat, and then, and then take a shower, and then find himself in sleep. Take the TV out of the room. And do you have a place where he can sleep by himself? Oh, he's not going to want to do that. I said, not, none of us really want to do that. Have you ever asked a baby if he wants to sleep by himself? His answer is going to be no. And Alan's going to say no, too that he's got to learn how to sleep by himself. So finally, Mom bought into all this, and I said, he may not have you around. You have a tumor in your head. So you're going to have to teach him how to sleep by himself. Mom bought into that, too. And so Alan slowly started to be able to sleep through the night. And without my consent or without the the psychiatrist's consent, she decided that one by one she was going to to throw those medications out and I would never have consented to, to that without the psychiatrist uh, agreeing to it. But within a few uh, months, she had taken him off of all of those medications, and Alan was sleeping through the night and was starting to behave better. But guess what? Because he was sleeping through the night, he was also starting to behave better at school and pay attention, and his grades started going up. When that happened, Alan started having self-confidence. And he started saying, I am better than a lot of those other kids that are teasing me and pushing me around and saying that I'm not worth anything. Mom didn't have to come in three times a week to pick him up. And finally, he started to be able to pay attention to people, to look them in the eyes, to respond to them properly. Today, Alan is in middle school. He's on the football team. He's able to read well. He's able to write well. He's getting A's. He's getting B's. He is proud of himself, and he is a good-looking young man. And Mom has worked through her tumor situation. She's gotten her operations. She's able to, to get through the day, day by day. She's looking at getting a job, and she's pulling her family out of that situation that they were in. And that was all by pulling that one child little by little and being able to set a sleep pattern for him so that the family was able to sleep and to rest and to be on normal sleep and wake times. And I would say, Dr. Rosa, that's, you know, the, the, the idea of not getting enough sleep, I think, is hitting so much of America. And I think all the technology is making it harder. Those clinking phones, the text messages getting you pinged, the, the TV going. I, I just wonder how sleep in, in general is affecting the whole country as well, Dr. Rose. I agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more because the first thing that I said is get the TV out of the bedroom and there's no more tablet time two hours before bedtime. You see, the light in our tablets and our computers will simulate daylight. It, the brain will see that light very similarly the way that it sees daylight, light that is, is emanated by, by the sun. 
And so because of that, I said, so for two hours before bedtime, you're going to do restful things. You're going to start reading a little bit. You're going to start having maybe some sleepy time tea, uh, some chamomile tea around the table, and talking about your day and, and doing things that are much more peaceful than, than being isolated and being on the tablet and having an unrestful brain. This really worked for Alan, and I'm sure that it would work as well for a lot of people out there that are having these sleep problems uh, because of poor sleep hygiene and poor sleep patterns, but also our children. Yeah, I also think it's not uh, not, not just the, the light from these tablets, but the content from these tablets. It's so graphic. It's action-oriented. It's just getting the adrenaline flowing. And my goodness, how do you get to a peaceful state after having just watched Game of Thrones? How well, do you do re- it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I remember... Back when uh, videos first start coming out, and I loved Pac-Man, and who didn't? I, I mean, it, it was too. so much fun. Yep. But I would go to sleep, and I'd be able to see that little Pac-Man guy eating dots. Yep. And I had dreams with Pac-Man. <laughs> well, that's not healthy. And our children thinking about all these things and these Minecrafts, even if, you know, building stuff is good. Yep. But... That doesn't mean that this is a worthy thing to constantly be putting into our children's minds. So think about that. I like to limit the screen time, especially tablet screen time, to one hour a day. Does that seem impossible? Then we should start thinking about what is possible because we have too much of what I call junk food for the brain that we're exposing our children to. And saying no isn't the worst thing in the world. Letting our children be the ones to dictate how much screen time they do have is possibly going to be one of the worst things in the world and the outcome for our children. Couldn't agree more. And we found, at least with ours, that when we say yes to things like horseback riding and karate, one thing you can't do when you're riding a horse in the barn is play with your tablet. It's not working. It's not happening. It doesn't go out to the barn, and it doesn't come back from the barn. And by the way, if you've horseback ridden for an hour and a half or two hours, you're exhausted. And, and then you go to sleep after a little meal and a shower. This is Lee Habib, and we're talking to Dr. Rose, and she's our resident parent coach. And Dr. Rose, thanks so much for all you do, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. It has been such a pleasure. Same here. story and you're listening to the sounds of a man who you know you've heard his music we're going to play a couple of the songs and you go well of course i know that but you may not know his name by the way don't you love that when it happens and by the way there are also songs i thought i knew the words to my whole life until i found out what the words were but who we're listening to right now is george thorogood and the destroyers and the song madison blues and on this day in history george thorogood was born And we've got quite a story to tell about his life. 
and we love telling stories about all kinds of people, including musicians and actors and artists, because in the end, it's such an important part of the American fabric, and that's why we do it. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us from the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the finer things in life, and you'll learn everything from the Constitution to philosophy. You'll learn, if you go there to study, everything that you need to know about, well, just about everything. And I include U.S. history, and I include the arts and sports, because you will play sports if you go there. Mind, body, and spirit. That's how Hillsdale approaches the individual. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, if you've already gone to college but thought you missed out, you didn't get the right courses, or you wished you could have learned more, Hillsdale can come to you for your kids, too, and for free. Go to hillsdale.edu. Listen to all that they do there. And now it's time for the story you're about to hear. George Thorogood isn't your typical rock and roll burnout who sold his life and soul out for life on the road. His unbridled enthusiasm for life and music is contagious and refreshing. Here's Jesse with the story. No, I ain't seen my baby since the night before last. Gotta get a drink, man, I'm gonna get gas. Gonna get high, man, I ain't had enough. Need me a triple shot of that stuff. Gonna get drunk, won't so listen right here. I want one bourbon, one shot, one beer, one George Thorogood is an American musician, singer, and songwriter from Wilmington, Delaware. His sound became a staple of 1980s rock radio with hits like his original songs Bad to the Bone and I Drink Alone, or One Bourbon, One Scotch, and One Beer. With his band, the Delaware Destroyers, Thorogood has released over 20 albums, of which two have been certified platinum and six certified gold. With over 15 million in album sales worldwide, Thorogood and his Destroyers continue to tour extensively and in 2014 celebrated their 40th anniversary performing. George Thurgood describes his childhood as extremely average. Well, I grew up in, in, um, you know, in northern Delaware. You can't find a place with a more non-identity place on the planet. I mean, I grew up a a middle child in a middle-class family in the middle of nowhere. Um, As um, a kid, I was as average as, I was like a piece of Wonder Bread, man. I was like a C student and... It was just, it was my, my existence was so normal, I couldn't stand it, you know, and when I, you know, I get lost in, you know, television shows like Maverick and Paladin, the whole Hollywood scene, I said, there's a whole world out there and someday I'm going to be in it. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm not staying here, you know, I'm going to, you know, and a a lot of things when I, I still get a charge out of the, uh, you know, living in California, I'm kind of an adopted son here, you know, want to mind my manners so I don't get kicked out. George Thurgood's earliest influences were the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Bob Dylan. I grew up, really literally grew up on the rock and roll. I had two older brothers who were, you know, were, they were Elvis Presley, Ricky Nelson, Fats Domino fans. So I heard every rock record there was. So it was just a natural part of my life. I didn't even know it was something new when it came out in the 50s. I thought it had been around forever. But like any other kid, when the, the Stones and the Beatles and Dylan came out, they knocked me out. But it was really the Rolling Stones that got my interest up. Because I looked at the Beatles and they represented freedom. They could do anything they wanted. Let's face it, they had the world right right there. And Dylan Rob represented the truth. The Stones represented hope. I looked at their faces and I said, well, they, they, they don't look like Cary Grant. And their sound was, they were doing blues covers. So I started to say, there may be a chance for me. 
I, you know, I didn't kid myself at that time. I didn't think I was going to write, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man or yesterday or accomplish any of the things those people did. But this was pre-satisfaction days, and they were they were a blues band. And I said, "There's a chance." And every every other day at the bus stop, I'd look at Jeff Simon, he'd look at me, and we'd go, "Maybe, just maybe, we might be able to pull it off." His positive outlook on life is impossible to miss. Here, Thurgood talks about embracing pleasure over pain when it comes to his music. Man, brother, I celebrate every day. I celebrate my existence every day in some way, shape, or form, whether it be in music or whatever. Uh, that, that's what it's about. We're not, we're not here for very long. So when we pick up that guitar and get on the stage, it's 90 minutes of a celebration of just pure existence. I, I share pleasure. I don't share pain. Well, I'm not that way. When it, when it comes to my work or whatever is my music, I... I, I share the, the pleasures of my life, the, the pain I keep to myself. I met Carlos Santana once, and he said something very beautiful to me. He said, those people need healing. That's why they're here. Music is the one thing that people have, and they embrace it more than anything. I mean, you, as we said before, you can't read a book in the dentist chair. You can't watch a movie while you're driving to work. Um, when you're really alone with yourself. Music always pulls you through. That's why musicians are looked up. I still, I see musicians. I go, I, I'm lucky to say I'm friendly. I would like to say I'm friends with John Fogarty. I've known him for years. And I see him a lot. And one time, my wife and I were going to dinner and we, we were in traffic and he's sitting next to us. It's like I've known him for 20 years. I go, who's that? John Fogarty. See, that, that rush will never stop. But the music has the beauty. That's the beauty that makes the person when the music comes out of them, you look at them in a whole different way. You hear what they're playing, and then the sound matches up to their... You'd see them walking down the street, but you, you don't associate... But when you hear that music coming out of them... I mean, these people the, the get the sexiest people in the world on the cover of People magazine and all that. I'm saying, there's nothing sexier than music. Nothing. Thurgood is known to be a natural storyteller. Here, he describes what stories mean to him and why he likes to keep things so positive. If you're on an airplane and you're in on an airplane with somebody for eight hours or you're stuck in an airport, what good is a stamp collection? It's your stories. That's your whole life. Those are the real treasures that you have in the world where you, you get older to share with people. I mean, I went up to Bobby Costas one time. You know, Bob? I say, hey, Bob, you want to hear a funny story? And he looked at me and said, no, George, I want to hear a terrible story. <laughs> he got a point. You see, the story, that's what... That's what it's all about. I mean, anybody can have a car collection or, a, you know, they say, oh, all these great art. I said, tell me a story. One story that George Thurgood likes to tell about the power of music is about a woman who came to get his autograph while she was wearing a cast. I went to a, uh, and Jeff Simon and Bill Blower with me, we went to a place in Rochester, Pennsylvania, where they have a place called House of Guitars. And you go there in the afternoon and you, you, you have like a, they call it an in-store. And you sign records for fans and they had a bandstand you can get up and play too. So we did, and we'd gone to these things several times, and I went up and played, and then we'd sign the things for the, the people. You know, it was in the afternoon. So those people in the sign building sort of signing autographs, you know, any, anything they have. Young woman walks up, and she's on crutches, and she's got a cast up to here, and she's not doing real good. I mean, she, I thought she was going to throw up on me. I said, well, would you like me to sign your cast? No. And I said, why not? She said, it's too wet. And I said, what? She was on painkiller. She said, they just put the cast on me. I said, when? She goes, about an hour ago. She was on her way to the house of guitars to meet us, got in a car accident, went to the hospital, set her leg, put the cast on. The cast was still soft. And she still came down 
to see us. And that's the power of music. It's not often you find an old rock star with this kind of positive outlook on life or the ability to communicate it for that matter. Maybe it's because he never really did drugs or chased women. When we come back, we'll hear from George Thurgood about his guitar playing, making the switch from acoustic to an electric, and his stint as a semi-pro baseball player in the 1970s. our American stories and when we left off we caught a glimpse into the passion that George Thorogood has for music and life in general and now back to Jesse and the rest of the story who do you love yeah who do you love oh, who do you love George Thorogood began his career in the early 70s as a solo acoustic performer in the style of Robert Johnson and Elmore James after being inspired by a John Hammond concert, though he was perhaps most influenced by the Beatles above all others. Listen to George get into great detail about the profound impact that this music had on his life. You know, to me, no matter what was going on, the world to me was totally black and white. Like if it was a movie or a TV that was black and white, we turn on the TV, and this man steps up to the mic with this guitar. It looks like a violin, and he's playing it left-handed with this incredibly great-looking haircut and this great-looking face with these other guys. And he goes to the mic, and he says, Close your eyes, and I'll kiss you. He did that. And all of a sudden, to me, the world went technicolor. You know what I mean? It's like when you're watching the movie Yellow Submarine, and they get out of the submarine, all those colors come out like that. That's what it did for me. When I first heard that, and another thing that I noticed that I saw the Beatles and on TV, and they were the first people I ever saw, ever, that looked happy. Now, this was a few months after Kennedy was assassinated. In those days, I never saw any happy people. Parents were never happy. Guys hated their job. The, men, the parents never got along. The brothers were always getting beat up. There were fights all the time. I never saw, unless it was somebody in a movie who was faking it, you know, an actor. I never saw anybody who was really happy. I never saw anybody smiling. In my neighborhood, you know, the teachers were your enemy. Your principal was the enemy. You watched out all the time. Everybody was pissed off. And not just because the president had been assassinated. It had been going on. That was just the way of the world here in America. And I looked at those guys and I said, those guys are the first people I've ever seen happy. I'm going to do that for a living. <laughs> That's it right there. <laughs> go no further. Give me a guitar. Let's go. You know, so they, they did that for everybody. I mean, I'm not the only one. Um, and anybody who says different, who was born after 1950, is lying to you. 
You know, the Beatles opened it up. They were the, you know, they, the, uh, I think, I, I used to say after the Ed Sullivan show, February 11th, 1964, at approximately 8.04 p.m., <laughs> after that moment, every album, every guitar, every set of drums that was ever sold after that, 10% should have gone right in their pocket. Just after Easy Rider, every motorcycle, the fee should have gone right into Peter Fonda's, you know what I'm saying? Same with the Beatles. Cause they, and I mean everybody. I'm not just talking about rock. Because the whole world got turned on all of a sudden. All of a sudden, everybody was buying record players and guitars. And, you know, that was the start, you know. Um, and it hasn't stopped. It, it hasn't. And I like Paul McCartney for being very aware of that. And he, he's honest about it. He's aware of the, what they did. And he's also enjoys that they did that and, and, and loves being part of it, you know. Uh, and I, I respect him so much for that, you know. If I ever get a chance to meet him, I'm just going to say two words. You know what those two words are? Thank you. Thurgood also had a brief stint as a semi-pro baseball player before he made it big in the music scene. While he might be considered a man of many words... This is all he had to say about his professional baseball career. I'm fine of saying three things kept me out of the big leagues. I couldn't hit, run, or throw. It's a joke. So he went out and formed a band, the Delaware Destroyers, with a high school friend, drummer Jeff Simon. With additional players, they developed their own sound, a mixture of Chicago blues and rock and roll. Their first shows were at the University of Delaware and at the Deer Park Tavern. Eventually, they would shorten the band's name to just the Destroyers. Here, George Thurgood talks about his early years as an acoustic guitar player, how he learned to play, and making the inevitable switch over to the electric guitar. I started off as an acoustic player. You know, I, I had acoustic guitars. Um, obviously, it was an era when I was seeing people like uh, um, Brandy McGee and Mississippi Fred McDowell and John Hammond. Um, and they were all solo performers with acoustic guitars, and, and they all played in this finger-picking style, uh, thumb-pick, finger-pick, and this, this sort of thing. And, you know, and with, uh, when she was starting out, Bonnie Ray played like that before she got electric. She was an acoustic player, bottleneck player. Um, it was a fairly common thing at that time. It was very in vogue in the late 60s, early 70s, and I was just picking up on that. Uh, at the time, and a uh, natural way for me to play was that way. So I, and then when I saw Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, and all the real greats, who Mississippi Delta Blues, I noticed they all played that way. So quite naturally, when I was doing this, I, um, Muddy Waters was originally an uh, acoustic player, because when they started, there were no electric guitars. So they started out you know, playing this way to fool it, make it sound full. So when I went to the electric and we formed the band and say, oh, you really got a grip. And I said, well, I kind of learned the way the masters did, the way, the way they did it. Um, so I said, well, if, uh, if Keith Richards listened to Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry, who did Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry listen to? So I'd listen to Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. So well, these guys got it together. I'd say, well, who did they listen to? And people say, well, they listened to Muddy Waters and Elmore James. And then I said, well, who did Muddy Waters listen to? And they'd say, Robert Johnson. That's where I stopped. <laughs> I stopped right there. So I kind of had to go backwards to go forward. I went to the club down on my Everything seems to go back around to the great Mississippi blues man, Robert Johnson. It seems like anybody who ever became anybody in the rock and roll scene always followed the music back to this man. But Thorogood was also influenced by another brand of guitar picking when he was learning how to play. I also listened to a lot of um, 
you know, uh, like like country pickers too. Um, uh, people who did, uh, you know, finger picking style in in country bands. Um, I, I had a whole album. I listened a lot to um, Flat and Scruggs because they were they were country players, real country players. I'm not talking about country and western music, a marketable thing. I'm talking about something that real country players because they couldn't afford electric equipment, and they would sit on back porches with these big acoustic boxes and picking out these. These rhythms and these these styles you see, and everybody did it. I, I saw Elizabeth Cotton play one day. I was lucky. I saw her play one day, and she did that. Um, so I just said, "Well, I guess this is this is how it's done." You know, long before the flat picking came in and the you know the electric guitars and all that kind of thing. So um, you know, I just listened to as many things as I could, and then building on top of that, and then. One day I just said, I can't play acoustic guitar anymore. i got to form a band. So what did George Thorogood do next? He formed his band and found the guitar that was just right for him, a Gibson ES-125. So I got Jeff Simon, a childhood friend, and I got together and said, we're going to form a band. We're going to make a band like Hound Dog Taylor. We're going to make a three-piece band like Canned Heat. <laughs> and we're going to open for Jay Giles, and we're going to open for the Allman Brothers. He said, okay, let's go to work. See? So I got this 125 from a hawk shop. Put it in, and I said, wow, it's like an acoustic guitar because it has F-holes and arch top. So I was able to pick it. I said, it's not like the Fenders or the, or the, or the Gibson Les Pauls. And I said, I can't play those guitars. So we found this guitar. If we hadn't have found it, we probably wouldn't have had a band. So I couldn't make that transition from acoustic to electric um, like, like so many other others were, were able to do that. Uh, John Lee Hooker's guitars were very much made like acoustic guitars. He played a 330. He played an Epiphone. Uh, Howling Wolf had a big Epiphone when he played his his Delta Blues. You know, he played like. I have a little red rooster. Two days a crow for day. You know that kind of thing. So they 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 came from that, and I said, well, that's what I that's what I want to do, and it wasn't even like I was searching to try to make it as authentic as I could. It just happened to be that's the way I played. Thurgood's demo, called Better Than the Rest, was recorded in 1974, but not released until 79. His major recording debut came in 1976 with the album George Thurgood and the Destroyers, which was released in 77. In 1978, Thurgood released his next album with the Destroyers called Move It On Over, which included a remake of Hank Williams' Move It On Over. Please set a date and their reworking of the Bo Diddley song, Who Do You Love, both followed in 1979. The band's early success contributed to the rise of folk label Rounder Records. Thurgood gained his first mainstream exposure as a support act for the Rolling Stones during their 1981 U.S. tour. He was also featured as the musical guest on Saturday Night Live Season 8, Episode 2. During this time, Thurgood and the Destroyers also became known for their rigorous touring schedule, including the 50-50 tour of 1981 on which the band toured all 50 U.S. states in the space of just 50 days. He signed with EMI, America Records, and in 1982 released the song, Bad to the Bone. The song's roots can be traced back to rock and roll musician Bo Diddley's song, I'm a Man, which has a similar guitar riff, vocal rhythm, and overall structure. George Thorogood is one of the hardest working rock stars on the planet. He and his destroyers are still on tour, and Thorogood himself remains as positive as ever. He's one of the very few road-worn rockers that still has his wits about him and an unshakable outlook on life. This lifestyle on the road has ruined so many talented musicians over the years. It's nice to see one that made it out alive, soul intact, and seemingly unscathed by an industry that is known to chew you up 
and spit you out alive. This is Our American Stories. Great job on that, Jesse. And I learned some things about George Thurgood that I didn't know. I've seen him so many times, including that Stones tour, which is one of the great Stones tours of all time. And you got to be something to open for the Stones. That's no joke. What a class act. Never burned out and understood that joy thing. And he was right about the Beatles. Say what you want about them. They changed and influenced everything. And it's good to hear from him say that about Paul McCartney. And if you ever get a chance to see him, George Thorogan and the Destroyers are in, ta- in town or on tour, buy some tickets. You won't regret it. This day in history, George Thorogood was born. This is Our American Story. Now when I walk the streets, kings and queens step aside. Every woman I meet, they all stay satisfied. I want to tell you, pretty baby, what I see I'll make my own. And I'm here to tell you, honey, that I'm bad to the phone. This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, in 1955, Steve Jobs was born. You know his work, Apple, Pixar, Disney, but do you know the man? Born in San Francisco and adopted at birth by Paul and Clara Jobs, Steve was a precocious but difficult child from day one. The couple never gave up, though, and loved and indulged their son. Perhaps that's why, as an adult, Steve Jobs bristled whenever anyone called Paul and Clara his adoptive parents. Jobs would say that Paul and Clara were my parents, 1,000%, while his birth parents were my sperm and egg bank. That's not harsh. It's just the way it was. A sperm bank thing, nothing more, said Jobs. You can tell that young Jobs was a handful, to say the least, brilliant, mischievous, and deeply suspicious of authority. He wreaked havoc in school as a bored student. He eventually found outlets for his talents, though, as a 13-year-old Jobs cold-called Bill Hewlett of Hewlett-Packard to ask for parts for an electronics project. Bill gave the bright kid a job, and young Steve, well, he was in heaven. Eventually, in his high school years, Jobs made two distinct small groups of friends, one heavily into engineering and the other into art and literature. One of his best friends was an electronic whiz, Steve Wozniak, known as Woz, who we'll hear more about later. It's in these high school years that we start to see the Steve Jobs who would warrant a 657-page biography by Walter Isaacson in 2011. Prior to leading the Aspen Institute, Walter Isaacson ran Time Magazine and CNN. He also wrote tremendous biographies of Henry Kissinger, Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, and, of course, Steve Jobs. So... What drew Isaacson to Jobs? What made this tech executive stand out? I had a theory because his very first phone call when we started talking about it, he told me something that Edwin Land had said to him, which is that you always want to stand at the intersection of liberal arts and the sciences. You know, right there between the humanities and the, uh, the humanities and technology or engineering. And 
that's something we kind of lost in the C.P. Snow era, where you, know, you either were in the humanities or you were in the sciences. And my theory, among others, was that connecting creativity to wonderful feats of engineering was what made him so magical. Magical indeed. Young Jobs graduated from high school, dabbled in college, drugs, and various spiritual practices, and eventually and wound up working the night shift at Atari. And he learns a lot at Atari, including the notion of how to juice up chips and make them do amazing things, and also simplicity. I mean, you have to remember that games like Pong and Breakout and Star Trek, they had to be so simple that a stoned freshman could figure them out, you know. So it was like the instructions were insert, quarter, avoid Klingons or something. And so that simplicity got embedded in him. But simplicity didn't keep Jobs out of mischief. He and his buddy Waz learned about folks who built so-called blue boxes that could fool the Bell Phone Company's systems into allowing free calls around the world. And so Waz and Steve Jobs said, we got to do this. Went to Slack, the Stanford Linear Accelerator you know, uh, li- library there, found the Bell System manuals, and made an analog version of that that didn't quite work. Waz goes off to Berkeley, but in his first semester there, is able to make the first digital version of it. And uh, it, there, you see the partnership. Waz comes up with this amazing circuit board, but of course, you know, loves to show it off. Steve says, we can package it and we can sell it and make money. So they start going door to door in rooms in Berkeley, selling this thing. At one point, uh, testing it out by, I think, calling the Vatican and Waz pretended to be Henry Kissinger, saying that he was at a summit meeting and needed to speak to the Pope. I can see Waz is nodding at this one. As far as I can tell, they never really got the Pope on the phone, that the entire College of Cardinals was smart enough eventually to figure out it was not Henry Kissinger calling. But, you know, they showed the thing off, and Steve told me when he described that story and the whole Blue Box story, that if it hadn't been for the Blue Box, it wouldn't have been Apple. These shenanigans bonded the two Steves as Jobs and Waz formed a partnership that both desperately needed. They complemented each other well. I mean, he would say of Waz that he could uh, 50 times better than any engineer could have meetings in his head and design great circuit boards. Waz uh, had been taught by, you know, his father. Being an engineer is the highest calling, so he never thought about, maybe we should put it in a package. Maybe we should get, you know, great case. Maybe we should get a good power supply and integrate it. Maybe we can sell it at twice or three times the cost of our materials. And so what Steve did was, as he did his whole life, take really great ideas and come up with a great vision and pull it all together to do something amazing. And I think that was a perfect partnership for somebody who was, you know, could design a circuit board with one quarter of the number of chips that any other engineer would take to make it work. Building on that idea... Steve Jobs knew that he couldn't change the world with a team of one or even two. Steve, even though he was sometimes tough on people, truly created teams that were bonded together as if they were pirates in a pirate band. And Steve was able, with his both inspiring way and demanding way, to create collaborative teams. And he's done that his, he did that his whole life. 
And when we come back, wait, one second. Yeah. And when we come back, more on the young Steve Jobs and his reality distortion field. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking about Steve Jobs. On this day in history, Steve Jobs was born. More after these messages. our American stories and for the hour we're celebrating the life of Steve Jobs who was born on this day in history in 1955 and as always our this days in history are always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale can get to you go to their online course selection all of which is free at hillsdale.edu and my goodness economics 101 it's a must and you'll understand how, well, how a guy like Steve Jobs can do what he does. And I believe he can only do it in a country like America, where markets are protected, where capital and intellectual property are protected. And we are joined by Walter Isaacson here, who wrote the terrific book about Steve Jobs. And he's also written about Einstein and Benjamin Franklin. We heard about Steve Jobs' love for mischievous counterculture and the embrace of teams. It's also in these Atari years that biographer Walter Isaacson notices what many call Jobs' reality distortion field, that is, the ability to seemingly will the impossible into being. At one point, they were supposed to create a game called Breakout, which was a single-player version of Pong. And Steve says to Waz, you got to design the code in four days because we have to get back to the Apple commune for the weekend. They were working on an Apple commune in Oregon, or Steve was, hence the name of the company that they would eventually found. And Waz says to him, I can't do this code in four days. It's going to take me a couple of weeks. Steve Jobs had taught himself, even then, to stare without blinking. (laughs) And he stared at Waz and kept saying, don't be afraid. You can do it. And Waz went, don't be afraid. You can do it. Waz said it was amazing. After a while, Waz said, I went back to my little cubicle. I stayed up four nights in a row, and I was able to write the coding for Breakout. That reality distortion field over and over again was able to help Steve push people to distraction, push them to anger, but push them to do what they thought impossible. Even with the original Macintosh, the one I mentioned to you, it took a long time to boot up. It took more than 70 seconds to boot up. It was sort of almost as slow as a Microsoft uh, machine. (laughs) 
So Steve said to Larry Kenyon, the uh, engineer, you got to take 10 seconds off the boot up time. Kenyon says, well, Steve, it's, you know, elegant code. I, I don't think I can do it. Steve said, if you could save a human life, would you do it? Kenyon goes, well, I guess so. So Steve goes to a whiteboard and says, there can be a million Macintoshes sold next year. They'll be booted up maybe a couple times a week. If you shave 10 seconds off in the course of a year, you're going to save the equivalent of 100, 130 lifetimes. Then he looked at Kenyon and said, don't be afraid. You can do it. Kenyon said, I went back, went back to work, and within two weeks, I had shaved 28 seconds off the boot-up time. This reality distortion field wasn't some passing phase for Jobs. If anything, it only intensified and spread with time. Jumping ahead a few decades to the creation of the iPhone, Isaacson tells a story that sounds eerily similar to what happened in the 1970s. He said he wanted a really great, smooth piece of glass that was tough but silky. And the, uh, the claves in China that were making the glass for the stores all didn't meet his standards. He kept saying, no, it's got to be better. Finally, somebody said, why don't you call Corning? Corning Glass in New York. Maybe they can do it. Steve being Steve picks up the phone, calls a switchboard at Corning and says, let me speak to your CEO. Switchboard being a switchboard said, we'll take your name and number and have somebody call. Steve slams down the phone, says, typical East Coast ball. And eventually the head of Corning hears the story, smart guy. He calls the switchboard at Cupertino at Apple, says, let me speak to your CEO. They say, put your request in writing and fax it to us. Steve hears about it and says, that guy's cool. And they finally have a meeting. So Steve meets with the head of Corning Glass and says, here's what we need. This type of glass, really smooth. The head of Corning says, well, years ago we developed a process, an ion transfer process, that would make a glass like that, and we called it Gorilla Glass, but we never manufactured it. And Steve went through the process with him. And uh, Steve said, that's what I want. I need it. I need this much by September. We're shipping the phone this October. And so the head of Corning said, well, I just told you, we've actually never made that glass before. Now, this is 30 years to the month almost that he did it to Wozniak. I remember sitting. I went up to Corning Glass, sat with Wendell Weeks, a wonderful CEO there. And Wendell just, Weeks just told me the story. He said it was amazing. The guy sat right, right across from me and stared at me without blinking. And he said, don't be afraid. You can do it. Eventually, you know, after the meeting, Weeks picked up the phone and called a plant manager of a corning plant near Lexington, Kentucky, a plant manager he liked, and said, I want you to start right away shifting from making flat screen gla TV glass to Gorilla Glass. Of course, the plant manager said, well, we don't have that. And basically, Wendell Weeks said to him, he said, I just said, don't be afraid, you can do it. <laughs> the upshot is, that's why every piece of glass on every iPhone that year, and every piece of glass on every iPhone in your pocket and iPad is made by Corning Glass, because Steve had a reality distortion field and got people to do things like that. Jobs had other ways of inspiring and driving his colleagues, and many were less pleasant than unblinking encouragement. Few would accuse Jobs of being particularly sensitive, but he behaved this way because he almost couldn't help it. 
Isaacson shares a moment from Steve Jobs' childhood that explains so much of his later career and life. I tell the story in the book with Steve walking me by his house that he grew up in, the house when he was very young, and his dad, he built a fence with his dad, and he showed me the fence, and we touched it, and he said, my dad taught me to make the back of the fence as beautiful as the front, and I asked my dad why, nobody will ever see it, nobody will ever know, and my dad said, but you will know, and that's why even on the Apple II, he wants a circuit board to be beautiful. And when they get to the Macintosh, the next one over, even though you cannot open it, he holds it up for a while because the chips on the circuit board are not neatly aligned. And when they say, but nobody can open it, nobody will know, he says to the Mac designers, but you will know. This all-consuming perfectionism led many to label Jobs temperamental, bratty, and more choice words. This was hardly news to Steve himself, as Walter Isaacson recalls. You know, I was at Time, Inc., and at one point, Fortune was doing a story involving his cancer and other things. And Steve was furious and called up the editor and the editor-in-chief. I was there and, you know, heard the stories. And finally, he says to Andy Serwer, the editor of Fortune, wait a minute, so what do you have here? You've discovered I'm a Why is that news? <laughs> One of the questions Walter Isaacson was asked the most on his book tour was whether Steve Jobs had to be that way. Isaacson always said that he was a storyteller, not a management consultant. But he suspected that in the case of Jobs, the vision and obsession with perfection were behind both his success and his rough edges. Those flaws played a part in Jobs' ouster from Apple Computer, the company he and Waz founded. So from 1985 to 97, Jobs ran another computer company called Next, and spun off a little studio named Pixar. You might know some of their work. Toy Story, Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Wally. The list goes on, earning some 16 Academy Awards, 7 Golden Globes, and 11 Grammys. When a variety of circumstances put Steve Jobs back at the helm of Apple in 1997, he realized that they were behind in some key areas. So what did Jobs do? The mark of a true genius of a company is not when you think of, not just when you think of things first, but when you actually fail to think of something first, can you leapfrog, can you catch up? And so he realizes he had gotten aced out of the music business, that others were making CD burner trays and people were, you know, people were, all of us were making, you know, downloading music from Napster and making playlists and burning CDs, and you couldn't really do it that well on the Apple. So he had to leapfrog, and he says, we're going to do it by making a perfect end-to-end thing with the jukebox software, which is iTunes, the store in which you get your music, the device itself, and when they start making the iPod, he makes it so simple because it's end-to-end integrated with the whole thing. You can take some of the complexity and put it on the Mac or put it in the iTunes software so that the device itself is not one of these complicated MP3 players where you had to figure out how to do it. You could just look at it with that tracked wheel and it was intuitive. And he kept saying, I want to be able to get to wherever I want, whatever song I want, whatever function I want, in three clicks and I want it to be intuitive. And he drove him and drove him and drove him until the iPod becomes perfect. And that's when he leapfrogs and does the music. But it takes Apple from being Apple Computer, they even changed the name to just Apple, into being in the digital hub business. 
More on the life of Steve Jobs, born on this day in history in 1955. our American stories and on this day in history Steve Jobs was born in 1955 and as always our this days in history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College where you can go to learn all the finer things in life from the arts to U.S. history to the Constitution and it goes all the way to well sports even and by the way you'll learn about economics and about business there too and the role business has played in the development of this country, without men like Steve Jobs and Henry Ford and Bernie Marcus and Sam Walton and all these great men and Fred Smith. And by the way, Fred Smith, FedEx founder, Bernie Marcus, Home Depot founder, Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart. And these people are innovators and they make this country what it is. Henry Ford, we know what he did. And of course, our John D. Rockefeller hour. Without John D. Rockefeller bringing oil down in price and available to everyone in this country at every country gasoline station, what would we have put into those Ford cars that we all bought to get around? And this day in history, again, Steve Jobs was born, and we were just hearing from Walter Isaacson, who wrote the book on Steve Jobs, on how Steve Jobs' return to Apple in 1997 kicked off a revolution that led to iPods, to iPhones, and iPads, reshaping our lives reshaping the world. Let's listen to a story about the original iPod that again shines a light into the mind of Steve Jobs. What was this man striving for? For him, simplicity was the ultimate sophistication, which was a phrase they used on the first Apple marketing brochure. That, as Einstein would say, simplicity is the key to understanding the way the good Lord created the universe. He, he believed in simplicity as beauty, just as Newton did, just as Kepler did, just as all great people who try to understand the universe. They understand that simplicity is a way of saying we have not just eliminated stuff, we have gotten to the essence and we understand it. And we can really feel, whether it's what a screw does in a particular computer or the way Maxwell's equations deal with the speed of light, there's a true simplicity that is integral, at least in Steve's mind, to beauty. For example, when he's creating the iPod, that absolutely wonderful machine, and what he had done over and over again was not invent totally new things. I can remember having an MP3 music player before the iPod, But they were brain dead. They were junky. They were horrible. You couldn't figure out, how do I put songs in? How do I make a playlist? How do I get to the song, you know, the interface? How do I get to the song I want? Steve said, make it simple. He said, just this simple. A thousand songs in your pocket, three clicks to get to any song. And they said, okay, okay. He said, no manual, no instructions, three clicks. So they would show them the different interfaces they were coming up with. And it would have the, uh, you know, 
different way. He said, well, I can't get to it in three clicks. And he'd say, not good enough. And they'd say, well, we need a screen for the title, and we need a screen for the artist, and for the al-. He said, no, no, you don't need all that. Three clicks, any song. And finally, they come up with this absolutely beautiful, intuitive design. You all remember it, the original iPod, which is that scroll wheel. You get to any song you wanted. As you scrolled longer, it went down faster. It was all simple and intuitive. And he loves it. But he looks at it, and there's a big old button on top. And he says, what the is this? They're a little bit scared to answer, but it one point, somebody finally says, Steve, that's the on-off button. Steve nods and says, what the does it do? Now they're a little scared because they know he knows what it does. They finally say, Steve, it turns it on and off. And then he says, why do we need it? And it slowly dawns on him, you don't need that big old button. If you quit using your iPod, it powers down. If you start using it again, it knows to power itself back up. You know, you don't need a big old button to junk it up, to go on off. So they take it off, and it was that the sort of understanding of the beauty and the essence of simplicity. As you might imagine, a man who reacts that way to an on-off button wasn't going to stop at making the first iPod. He can't abide the fact that he's making these insanely great products and they're being sold in big yeah. box stores. Yeah. You know, by clerks who have no idea what they're doing. So he comes up with the notion of the Apple Store, which is not just a store, but a whole branding exercise. And, um, you know, it's just uh, that notion of bending industries. For the iPod and iTunes Store to work, you had to convince seven record companies to put all their music on. And, and disaggregate albums and sell the songs instead of the albums. Sell the songs for 99 cents initially. None of the music companies quite well. They had their own press play and, you know, they were doing their consortia. Obviously, Sony was trying to, you know, they'd done the Walkman. They had a great music division. None want to come aboard. And Steve, personally, is like bringing the iTunes software to the Time Warner building, showing it to Roger Ames at Warner Music, getting him aboard, and then getting, you know, Doug Morris at Universal, finally encircling Sony. No other CEO would have been so passionate about just, you know, going at people until they finally surrendered, and Sony's the last holdout. There's a great story Andy Lack and others told me. Andy Lack was running Sony Music at the time. He has to surrender. He has to put Sony Music in. But the one thing that Steve wants is all of Dylan. Because he and Waz in the early days had found every bootleg tape. They had totally Dylan fanatics. It's a soundtrack of Steve's life. Dylan is a Sony artist. So he wants to do all 772 tracks of Dylan as a virtual digital set that you can buy for $199. Andy Lack at Sony says, no, I'm going to jab it to him because I need leverage. We're not going to allow Dylan to be on. Steve calls Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, with all due respect to one of the great artists at the time, slightly spacey, so doesn't quite deal with it, but sort of his manager, they're all trying to figure out, Steve Jobs talk him into it. Andy Lack finally says to Bob Dylan, I will write you a check for $1 million if you'll stay out of the iTunes store with that box set for a year. And Dylan, I hate to say it because I love Dylan, takes the money. 
But a year later, Andy Lack has moved out of uh, Sony, and Dylan's box set not only goes on to the iTunes store, Dylan does an iPod ad, you may remember, with silhouettes, and Dylan wearing the cowboy hat. And you know what? It helps Dylan more than it even helps the iPod. For the first time since 20 years, he debuted with an album at the top of the Billboard charts. Because iTunes and the iPod had such a cachet that him just doing that ad introduced him to a new generation. And the rest, they say, is history. Can you ever imagine or even imagine life today without the various Apple iDevices and their competitors? During this period of tremendous innovation, Steve Jobs was diagnosed with cancer in 2003 and eventually lost the struggle in 2011. He regularly met with Isaacson, who was working on the biography. Here's one of the last things they talked about. And I asked him, did he believe that after he died, you know, his spirit would live on? He had been trained as a Zen Buddhist. said, do you still believe in God? He said, I like to believe that, you know, when I die, my experiential wisdom and all I've learned will indeed endure somehow, still be there uh, in some fashion, in some soul, in some spirit, some incarnation. He said, but I guess sometimes I worry a little bit that maybe when you die, it's just like, you know, an on-off switch. You die and click, you're gone. I was taken aback, of course, and just stared for a moment. And then he gave me that wonderful half-smile he has, and he said, maybe that's why I didn't like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. And that's one of the beauties of storytelling, folks. Even though Steve Jobs is no longer with us, his legacy remains in his products, his company, and his stories. When we come back... We'll hear some more Steve Jobs stories from Steve Jobs himself. This is Our American Story, celebrating the life of Steve Jobs, born on this day in history in 1955. our American stories for the hour, the life of Steve Jobs, and it deserves an hour. This is one of those that bordered on two hours, actually. Walt Disney, we did two hours. Martin Luther King, we did two hours. John Wooden, we did two hours. And then there are a bunch of one hours. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and go to our This Days in History. I think there's about 150 great ones there. One of my favorites, Will Chamberlain, scores 100 points. You still can't believe someone in the NBA could do that in one game. It's a record that will probably stand forever. So now we promised you that you'd hear from Steve Jobs himself. You've just been listening to Walter Isaacson. There's no better person to listen to. Talk about Steve Jobs. What a storyteller Walter is. In 2005, Steve Jobs delivered the commencement address at Stanford. And he basically told the graduates three stories from his life. Here's the first about connecting the dots. I dropped out of Reed College after the first six months, but then stayed around as a drop-in for another 18 months or so before I really quit. So why'd I drop out? It started before I was born. My biological mother was a young, unwed graduate student, and she decided to put me up for adoption. She felt very strongly that I should be adopted by college graduates, 
So everything was all set for me to be adopted at birth by a lawyer and his wife. Except that when I popped out, they decided at the last minute that they really wanted a girl. So my parents, who were on a waiting list, got a call in the middle of the night asking, we've got an unexpected baby boy, do you want him? They said, of course. My biological mother found out later that my mother had never graduated from college and that my father had never graduated from high school. She refused to sign the final adoption papers. She only relented a few months later when my parents promised that I would go to college. And 17 years later, I did go to college. But I naively chose a college that was almost as expensive as Stanford. And all of my working class parents' savings were being spent on my college tuition. After six months, I couldn't see the value in it. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life and no idea how college was going to help me figure it out. So I decided to drop out and trust that it would all work out okay. It was pretty scary at the time, but looking back, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. The minute I dropped out, I could stop taking the required classes that didn't interest me and begin dropping in on the ones that looked far more interesting. Reed College at that time offered perhaps the best calligraphy instruction in the country. Because I had dropped out and didn't have to take the normal classes, I decided to take a calligraphy class to learn how to do this. I learned about serif and sans serif typefaces, about varying the amount of space between different letter combinations, about what makes great typography great. It was beautiful, historical, artistically subtle in a way that science can't capture and I found it fascinating. None of this had even a hope of any practical application in my life. But 10 years later, when we were designing the first Macintosh computer, it all came back to me. And we designed it all into the Mac. It was the first computer with beautiful typography. If I had never dropped in on that single course in college, the Mac would have never had multiple typefaces or proportionally spaced fonts. And since Windows just copied the Mac, it's likely that no person computer would have them. If I had never dropped out, I would have never dropped in on that calligraphy class, and personal computers might not have the wonderful typography that they do. Of course, it was impossible to connect the dots looking forward when I was in college, but it was very, very clear looking backwards 10 years later. Indeed, and what a great story that is for all of us. When a college dropout drops back in, and learns about space and art and beauty. And my goodness, if there's one thing he's taught us about machines, they can be beautiful. And if Apple's anything, their products are beautiful. Here's Steve Jobs' second story about love and about loss. I was lucky. I found what I loved to do early in life. Waz and I started Apple in my parents' garage when I was 20. We worked hard, and in 10 years, Apple had grown from just the two of us in a garage into a $2 billion company with over 4,000 employees. we just released our finest creation, the Macintosh, a year earlier, and I'd just turned 30. And then I got fired. How can you get fired from a company you started? Well, as Apple grew, we hired someone who I thought was very talented to run the company with me. And for the first year or so, things went well. But then our visions of the future began to diverge, and eventually we had a falling out. When we did, our board of directors sided with him. And so at 30, I was out. 
and very publicly out. What had been the focus of my entire adult life was gone, and it was devastating. I really didn't know what to do for a few months. I felt that I had let the previous generation of entrepreneurs down, that I had dropped the baton as it was being passed to me. I met with David Packard and Bob Noyce and tried to apologize for screwing up so badly. I was a very public failure and I even thought about running away from the valley. But something slowly began to dawn on me. I still loved what I did. The turn of events at Apple had not changed that one bit. I'd been rejected, but I was still in love. And so I decided to start over. I didn't see it then, but it turned out that getting fired from Apple was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. The heaviness of being successful was replaced by the lightness of being a beginner again, less sure about everything. It freed me to enter one of the most creative periods of my life. During the next five years, I started a company named Next, another company named Pixar, and fell in love with an amazing woman who would become my wife. Pixar went on to create the world's first computer animated feature film, Toy Story, and is now the most successful animation studio in the world. In a remarkable turn of events, Apple bought Next, and I returned to Apple, and the technology we developed at Next is at the heart of Apple's current renaissance. And Lorene and I have a wonderful family together. I'm pretty sure none of this would have happened if I hadn't been fired from Apple. It was awful tasting medicine, but I guess the patient needed it. Sometimes life's going to hit you in the head with a brick. Don't lose faith. I'm convinced that the only thing that kept me going was that I loved what I did. You've got to find what you love. And that is as true for work as it is for your lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on. So keep looking. Don't settle. And Jobs concluded this remarkable commencement address again at Stanford University in 2005 with a story about death. When I was 17, I read a quote that went something like, if you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. <laughs> it made an impression on me. And since then, for the past 33 years, I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I am about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. About a year ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. I had a scan at 7.30 in the morning, and it clearly showed a tumor on my pancreas. I didn't even know what a pancreas was. The doctors told me this was almost certainly a type of cancer that is incurable, and that I should expect to live no longer than three to six months. 
My doctor advised me to go home and get my affairs in order, which is doctor's code for prepare to die. It means to try and tell your kids everything. You thought you'd have the next 10 years to tell them in just a few months. It means to make sure everything is buttoned up so that it will be as easy as possible for your family. It means to say your goodbyes. Having lived through it, I can now say this to you with a bit more certainty than when death was a useful but purely intellectual concept. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet, <laughs> death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. And that was Steve Jobs in 2005 at Stanford University. And, well, he was born on this day in history in 1955. And what a life he led. This is Our American Stories, as always, Our This Day in History, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Steve Jobs, one of the giants.